Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, channel 132. Each week, we talk about the craft beer business, pop culture, and whatever else comes to mind. I'm here with my co-host, JWB's head brewer, Maria Cabre. What's up, Maria? Hi. Our first guests are the founders of Arizona Wilderness Brewing Company, which originated in Gilbert, Arizona. Bonding over a love of the great outdoors and craft beer, the two teamed up to open a seven-barrel brewery in 2013. That year, they won Rate Beer's coveted Best New Brewery in the World Award, beating out over 2,600 other breweries. Over the years, their beers have garnered international claim as they have expanded their reach while staying true to their mission of sustainability. As a company, they have made a commitment to sourcing beer and food ingredients from Arizona farmers and have recently applied to become a certified B corporation. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jonathan Buford. How you doing, man? I'm great. Dude, we have Miami weather going on in Phoenix right now. It's crazy, but I, I'm great. <laughs> You're missing the humidity, I'm I sure. I know, right? I got good news. Pat Ware is, is available. Oh, well, welcome to the show, Pat Ware. What's up? What's up? There huh. was a construction guy and the car moved. Uh, shoes were <laughs> off because I was stuck through a river. We had flooding and Pat had to run here with no shoes on. It was great. Uh, <laughs> it is good to have you both on, dude. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start this off. John, obviously we've known each other for a while, but you were an aspiring landscape photographer when you saw an actual sign that inspired you. Was that the moment in the wilderness that really was the first time opening a craft beer brewery that kind of occurred to you? Like the thought of opening one kind of like came to your mind? Yeah, that's the impetus moment. Um, the idea that wilderness was protected from human interaction or human, um, you know, to be unkempt is what it's called allowed to be what it is i feel like that's not just in nature that can also be in your mind there should be spots of wilderness that are untouched and allowed to be wild and with beer at that particular moment uh you know we we all can agree we had a different view of craft beer back then and it was to keep beer pure to keep the evil empire's hands from beer right right uh this is well before reading P&Ls weekly and having, you know, manager <laughs> meetings. And, uh, but, you know, the truth is I think we accomplished what we were looking for. And that, for me, was the moment where I said, hey, I love this. The missing link, though, was I'm such an idea maximizer, and Patrick was earning his keep in a brewery. Well, right. That's what I was going to get get to next. I yeah, mean, you need both. Yeah, so Pat, and Pat, you were actually had been brewing for about five years before you met John. Where were you brewing, and when did you meet John along these lines? Uh, so I started as I was a home brewer in college. I worked at Gordon Beers in Tempe on Mill Avenue, and, uh, you know, that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. But uh, I moved I moved over to a 15-barrel facility that was seeing the monumental growth that the industry was seeing at that time. And that, that facility went from 2,000 barrels to 15,000 oh, wow. overnight. And so we were doing that in a pub, brewing 24-7. And it was just brutal. You know, it was kind of crazy. I think they were the fastest-growing brewery in America in 2012 or 11, if I recall correctly. And Gordon that Beers? was a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. No, this was, no, uh, this was Santan. Santan brewery, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So we were just hammering away. And uh, so I had that, that background and mentality to just get it done at all costs and sleep on grain bags and do what you got to do. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, John and I met, we didn't know each other through facial recognition <laughs> from everybody. You know, a, doppelganger. a beautiful was, female came up to me and said, where were you last night? And I knew there was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I better, I got to meet this guy. <laughs> oh boy. That's, That's right. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, my young single days and it's a fun industry. We were, we we're all having fun and enjoying ourselves and working hard. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was in its growth spurt. So, you know, everyone just kind of did what they, they had to do to, to help it grow, you know, and, and make a bunch of beer. And 
the quality control probably wasn't where it is now and <laughs> but it sold so fast it didn't matter you know absolutely so you guys obviously connect get together you obviously have two different backgrounds both of which are much needed to open and run a brewery and you guys kind of put your heads together and this is kind of along the lines where i got introduced to you by a mutual friend who moved from fort lauderdale to arizona and you guys uh decided to do a kickstarter which i mean i think you guys were actually the first to do a kickstarter and get it up off the grounds if i remember correctly Mystic Brewing Company ah. in North Carolina. Okay, but I don't know that they open. Wait, that's a good point. I'm yeah. not sure that he ever got open. I, I don't. I don't. Home. I don't think he did. So you guys, to me, were the real first, and then followed by uh, Modern Times and myself. But you guys were the guy, like the tra- yeah. the trailblazers. Well, you made us look silly. You made us look silly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you guys I are still. I world and no one could ever do what we did and then wakefield just jokingly is like hey me and greg cook are hanging out he thinks it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> yes that's amazing oh uh, but i, mean, I don't know if i want to open a brewery wakefield said 25 times to me i don't know <laughs> exactly but you guys what was it how much did you guys raise i think it was 50 43 43 000. we're asking for 40 i'll be honest back then started jump in but i think this this story is pertinent to it important okay. to it i i was obsessed with what everyone was obsessed with back then three and a half barrel systems right everyone was so into this thing and so you know in hindsight it's so funny to ask for 40 grand you know really you get it it's probably cost four million to even well above that to get the assets we needed to run a proper company but back then there was this idea that you could open for cheap. I wish we could eliminate that. I'll be honest. If I can go back in time, I'd like to reinstate some values on being better to your company. Uh, mental health and, and cheap quality stuff don't go together. So I'm glad we got 43. But what I did there really was I got better at homebrewing. Uh, I got the first kettles and stuff like that were, that were just misshapen Grundies with hot boxes welded to the bottom. It's cool that we got going, but anyone starting today, I'd really recommend you um, get fully funded and then 25% above that. Why Gilbert, Arizona? I mean, if you could describe Gilbert, Arizona to our listeners, why Gilbert? Yeah, well, it, okay, this is a uh, dense topic because I'll admit we've shifted some of our ideals um, as a company and how we view the world. Right. And Gilbert, <clears throat> Gilbert's in the middle of where we want to be. Okay. It's not too far one way. It's definitely not too far the way we're going, though. So in the beginning, I'll just give you that feedback and kind of give you an update of where we're at. But um, we, in that, that mindset of cheaper is better, easier in the beginning, <laughs> we found a building in Queen Creek, which is another suburb, even further past. And at that time, breweries coming in weren't popular yet. It wasn't quite the, oh, you're a brewery, go do whatever you want. And so L.A. Fitness, which I won't go back to that, Jim, L.A. <laughs> Fitness. Or maybe you they, will, man, because that, that was a good thing that happened, right? Maybe I'll go back and thank them because they blocked us from going in next door. Ah. And we had, hey, the architect, we had done all these things that, that you do in the beginning, right? Correct. And I had no clue what was going I mean, I had no clue. I was getting bills going, oh, to talk to an architect is $2,500. But I got there, and LA Fitness wrote me this kind of cease and desist saying, we own the parking here, and you're not going to come in because oh, wow. we have to have parking. Devastating news turned into, in hindsight, the best thing that's ever happened. So we then start looking in Gilbert. From 2002 to this year, it's been in the top three cities of growth. So we went from 25,000 to 280,000 um, and growing. And, and as they did that, they got in the black as far as their numbers go. And they can spend a lot of money on a lot of things. And it's, it's been the most successful suburb in the state by far. Wow. I mean, we talked to the mayor of Tempe yesterday, and they're all jealous of Gilbert because it's absolutely crushing it. Yeah. Like, it is crushing, even to the point where our Gilbert location is losing business to the main part of Gilbert because it's crushing it so hard. Yeah, so fast forward, you know, we're proud to be in Gilbert. We like that they're investing in, in bike infrastructure and things. But one thing I'll tell you, like, even visiting you, Wakefield, we're not really looking to be in Utopia. 
No, I we don't. like the other side of the train tracks. We yeah. like to see African-Americans and females and Latinas. and Lati- We like that. Gilbert's not exactly giving us all of that right now. And downtown, which is behind me, downtown is. And so we're learning what serving beer to diverse people means. One, give them representation. Right. Two, beer to white males run a brewery. But it, it means you're going to hire differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to talk differently. And so we have two worlds. Gilbert's still really good to us. But the diversity is not – we do believe the future is diverse. We do believe the future is more female. We do believe that we shouldn't – and it's funny, Maria, on this phone, on this call. It's like we shouldn't have uh, a, a female brewer being pointed at. <laughs> Look, a female brewer. Right. It should be as part of the industry. And so downtown is helping us work that way in. Um, and it, it could come off as like – Wow, they don't love Gilbert. Oh, we do. They've been good to us, but we're really happy we also opened downtown the, the restaurant and tap house beer garden because it allows us to express ourselves in that way. That's amazing. That is an amazing thing, which I, I'm, you know, your, you guys' growth has been amazing to watch, obviously, not only from, you know, an outside perspective, but being, you know, a good friend as well. I also remember not only did you do the Kickstarter thing, which was amazing. But then you guys followed it up with the rate beer award, <laughs> which you guys, you know, you kind of crushed that as well. I mean, first year in and you guys take it home. I mean, and if I remember correctly, you guys made like local news. I mean, this was a big deal. Like what kind of effect did this have on you guys? <laughs> We're going to get two different answers here. Um, I still have good and bad memories of that time. I'm proud of, well, you know, let's just go through that morning and all, again, in hindsight, it's funny because Mickle's a great friend of mine now. Joe Tucker's a great friend of mine now. You're a great friend of mine. But at that time, Sean Hill's now uh, someone I know um, a lot more. But at that time, all these people were emailing me, congratulations. Um, Sean said, I was the best new brewer last year. Congratulations. Oh, wow. And I'm like, Sean Hill emailed me? And, and Mickle <laughs> wrote me, congratulations on best new brewery. I hadn't heard the news yet, Wakefield. I really? Heard the news yet. You didn't know? Yeah. Wow. No, because it releases in Europe, the ne- you know, eight hours before. So Mickle's going, as he did at that time, going, oh, I only accept the best. You're invited to my festival. And Ooh. we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's <laughs> really? amazing. Um, and then Joe Tucker finally got a hold of me. And we got that news and a time frame where we've always been behind funding. We've always owed somebody money. We've never been able to, at that time, right, never been right. able to keep up. Our mindset is definitely famished. We are eating and drinking like we're poor. And because we had spent all of the lack of, all of our lack of funding was, was showing up. So we weren't exactly infrastructurally sound I hear you. <laughs> no. to be the best new brewery in the world. And then I did my job by telling the news that I maximized. Um, yeah, of course. And we, we were hearing the dumbest stuff, like the best brewery in the universe because it had to be sexier headline news. <laughs> and like, and I, would, I would say, no, hold on, hold on, best new brewery in the world of 2013, so much different than best brewery or best brewery in the universe. They don't care about that. You know, the right. news doesn't care. They're going, hey, we have popular tagline news. But it just never ended, dude. It never ended. It was – Emmy award-winning anchor comes in. Like we don't get Emmy award-winning anchor right. of new, you know NBC five. We're getting that. Yeah, and, uh, Esquire yeah. magazine showed up. Esquire magazine called. <laughs> That's amazing. And they're like, dude. hey, we have this. We have John Hamm, and then we want to do a piece uh, for the center. John Hamm, you know, of Mad Men, and then we want a piece for the center. And we're like, oh, okay. Spread comb <laughs> our hair that day. Um, and and those things came so fast. Now, in hindsight, I know what operations needs. And Pat was always that guy reminding me to say, remember, operations lives matter. <laughs> and, and those, we got we to hire operations people. We've got to get them in. Right. And now it just took a long time to get there. So what a cool award to win. But were we the best? Hell no. <laughs> we, had, Hell no. Uh, we were. If you looked at behind the walls, you would say these guys are brewing in a kettle that over boils over into their offices, and they have a soft hoses through their kitchen. Um, did amazing. we meet the standards of that day, that moment's right. algorithm of new, exciting, cool beers? Oh yeah, we were trying some, some crazy shit. Of course you. But were. right now, if I were to look at us back then, I would say we weren't taking care of our staff very well. 
uh, we didn't we didn't have wow. a structure that worked. It's just funny we, though. So to put it in perspective, we had this restaurant that could seat a couple hundred people, and like we were doing fine. Uh, but we had five seven barrel fermenters, and that was it. Oh wow! And so what happened was we were chugging along, like yeah, we can make beer for this pub that's like doing pretty good, and make this creative stuff. And then the doors got ripped off the place, and we went down to just one beer on tap. Oh my god! And we didn't have anything else nothing else to offer all of our regulars who stick with us over the years always like to talk about this moment we just had i one... remember when john and pat went down to one beer we had <laughs> one beer on tap and we were kind of looking at it like we might just need to close for two weeks oh yeah. boy that's amazing to be able to ferment something yeah and that's so that's the result of best new brewery in the world when you're not ready for it of it was and, and i'll never t- you know give that award back but there was a both duality to it and, right. and it did propel us to understand that we do need to continue excellence. And you you guys get that. Of course. You can't stop and make one good beer. You have to continue. And that shit's hard. That no, shit I, will wear you out. Trust me, you are you're preaching to the choir. I mean Yeah. I mean crap. I mean I tried to follow in your guys' footsteps in uh two thousand fifteen, but uh Casey ended up knocking me out of the top spot and uh I took second. <laughs> You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're talking to Jonathan Buford and Patrick Ware of Arizona Wilderness. I know the ingenuity that you guys carry, especially being where you're from and where your guys' mindsets are, and we can kind of get into that. Like your basis as a company, as a brewing company, and, and we can even go into like when you guys decided to use like the Arizona grown uh, Singua malt. Like using ingredients like that, what is local to you in making those shine and those beers? I mean that. Can you kind of explain like what that means to you guys and the beers that you make? Yeah, I'm glad to get into this topic because as we propelled our success, if you will, um, and our company grew from 16 to 32 to now I think 150 employees, which we only brew 3,400 barrels a year. It's not like we're this massive brewery. We just we had to start to form an identity that we hired those type of people too. And right. we wanted customers to see that we always had that. I want to be a local first company, right. but we realized everyone else was saying that too, or there were, you know, it, it just became easy to do those things. Yeah. But it's, so it's, we, there's it's, something, it's yeah. completely different, there's, dude. Like you guys actually, and it's kind of like the way we started, like it, with our fruit beers and stuff, it was anything that I could actually go down to the Redlands and buy. You know, I didn't want to yeah. use crap from Oregon Fruit. Not saying that we didn't, but I really, really pushed on the idea that we were going to use mango from Miami, passion fruit, guava, you know, soursop, anything local. And it was really kind of led by you guys demonstrating that with the ingredients you guys were using. So I really have to thank you guys for putting me kind of on that kick. Well, that that's, that's humbling, man, because you might have experienced this in your career. Sometimes it feels like no one gives a shit. Right, I hear you. No, I hear you. But we, you know, I'm very proud of something. I went recently, I try not to go back to the early days too much because of some of my lifestyle changes now. Uh, I look back at that, that kid 10 years ago on Kickstarter video, but I did get some things right. I said, I want to be a liaison to the farmer in a community and I want to practice conservation values. The, the reason I'm saying these things and Pat's saying these things and our company stands for that is because Arizona needs it. Five million people in a city that in 1950 had 180,000. Wow. It's the fastest growing county in America. It's wow. going to be the size of L.A. in 20 years. Wow. If we don't start to attract people who understand our resource depletion, right. our wildfire growth, right, and then floods like this are coming in, little rainfalls are turning into mudslides. It, it, we need to be a guiding light. We looked at Patagonia, the clothing company as one of our beacons of hope. Right. We really need this in the Southwest. We need companies to stand up for the actual landscape and obviously wilderness. As we talked about that sign, that's fitting more than ever is we need to treat it like we were never here. And, and this, this city is about comfort, and sometimes we want to break away from just comfort and say, hold on, let's adapt like the Native Americans adapted to the landscape. And so it's not just local. It's can we use less resources to give you a good product while you're in our place? Can we compost every piece of trash and go no landfills? 
can we reduce water use on simple applications? And those are just simple questions, John. I mean, we're not really solving the world's problems here, but it is a collective group of 150 people have to buy into that. And then our customers have to buy into that. Well, and we, and we need advocates like you yeah. to have that transparency and the voice to express these things. Right. Because what we've seen, um, and I don't want to point fingers, is there's some local washing that happens where it's all marketing. And it's not that they're a good company. They're good at marketing. So let's be oh. actually <laughs> good companies yeah. that are purpose-driven. Right. You know, And, and that's, that's the frustrating part for us at times is we feel like, we do invest a lot into this, you know, and make sure that if you're getting cacao, you're getting it from slave-free chocolate sources, you know, right. and are the, is that attention to detail being delivered to the, the craft consumer, right. right? Is the beer consumer uh, adapting and understanding these principles when they're buying products right. from us? And can we get a base that really supports that? you know, and, and make the change in the world that we are seeking. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a firm believer that raw materials are actually what's ruining the earth and humans buying raw materials at high rates that they never did. Like even we, we have a coconut beer on right now and we're just, we're, oh, no. we, we, we really want to work on coconut and sourcing well, and all those well, things. But we can go there because yeah, I, I am probably one of the m- most impacted people by that because our flagship coconut Hefeweizen is which our, is an awesome beer. We still talk about right, that a lot. Which that is, beer is incredible. You know, El Jefe is our number yep. one selling beer. But right now, we are in a mass shortage. I mean, you have to almost fight people to find raw coconut. It's unbelievable. But it is like you have said. I mean, there is a massive depletion. There's an overuse. Yeah. There's an over, you know, it's just consumption, consumption, consumption. But how are we recovering off of this? You know what I mean? How are we kind Right, of, and then how do we... How do we make sure that the person who's working in those fields isn't considered, you know, less of a human than our customers, right? right? Our customers are coming in and getting this cool product. How do they identify with generally someone of color, generally someone from um, an impoverished part of the world that they have no voice? How can we be a voice for that? Right. Number one, we need customers to pay the right price. Right. We can't hear about this. I need it to be cheaper anymore. I mean, if I we're going to go against the, yeah, we're going to go against the big guys. I don't know what you guys are brewing. I, I obviously know your system pretty well, right. but when you're a below 200,000 barrel brewery and then us with well, this as small as we are, this is not possible at low prices. So if you're a customer, you have to buy value as much as the product. And this story has to matter to you. And that's why it's hard for us to hire. I mean, I don't know what your marketing is. Oh. I have two people. Out of 150, I have two right. people. Right. And our story is dense. We should have 50 people on our marketing team right. for the denseness of our story. But we can't afford it because of the operations and raw material costs. Absolutely. So I mean, our customers have to care. Can you explain to me and to our listeners what a B Corp is and why you apply to become one? I'm going to let Pat handle this one because he's Pat. We're both passionate about bees. He's really good at explaining it. Okay. So uh, a B Corp is it's a third party uh, certification. And ultimately the idea behind B Corp and the whole beehive community is to put people and planet before profit. Um, obviously profitability has to be there. So there's a varying amount of metrics that go into that. What's your carbon footprint? How do you source raw materials? How do you treat your employees? Do you give maternity leave? Um, you know, are you anti-discrimination? All of these things. And so it's kind of a set of values. And what I noticed and John noticed is that we were already encapsulating those values. So, you know, we really needed just to put some guidelines in place and to put some objectives that we could strive for, you know, some quantifiable metrics that would say, hey, we're right here, this is our rating, can we improve in some of these areas? Like, hey, we're a conservation-driven brewery and we're saving this water in the Verde Valley, we're using grass-raised beef, we're doing all these things, but could we be better, right? Could we take that next step? And so I just jumped on and filled out their questionnaire, which is about 200 questions, and it really opened my eyes to a lot of things that we could work on that we weren't actually as good as I thought we were. And so if you go to um, any like health food store, you'll notice that there's B Corp certification on a lot of packaging. Right. And if you look at that, 
um, then you can start to understand that basically they want to be a force for good in the world. That's what, what B Corp is all about is trying to do, um, what you believe is right to make meaningful change for, you know, the future of humanity. And so we felt like, you know, this would be, it's, you know, it's not that expensive to do it, but one of the crazy parts about it was we applied and we didn't get a lot of response for upwards of a couple months. And wow. we just got an email yesterday that said, so they've been around for 15 years and Patagonia is a great example of a B Corp. Um, Allagash is a great example of a B Corp. New Belgium is a great example of a B Corp. And you look at the conservation values behind all of what right. they Creature do. Creature yes. Comfort just got Absolutely. B Corp. Yeah. just became B Corp. Um, so last year alone, it, to put it in perspective, they have 4,100 B Corps throughout the world right now. And that was 15 years of this program and them growing incrementally and getting the vision the idea out there. Last year, they had over 4,000 um, applicants wow. who submitted to become B Corp. So in a lot of ways, this is this is something for the future of business right. where people are looking at, at where their dollars go and saying, how can I make a meaningful effect on the outcomes of the world? And a lot of it comes down to like, are you conscious of what you're purchasing? You know, are you aware of where your dollars are going? Can you vote with your dollars on what you're buying, you know, for the ethics of a company that's doing the right thing? And uh, and, and so that's really where that all lies. But it's spiking up dramatically and they're they're doing their best to try to service all of the, the interest there. Um, but we're already doing most of the stuff. So right. you, we went through the questionnaire and like, oh, we're pretty much there anyways. We got to tweak a few things, um, you know, build in some more PTO for our team. If you have a lawyer on board, they won't love it. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, right. It's, oh boy! It's, well, some of it can be challenging, but ultimately, we're in a good position to do it because we're the two independent owners of the company. Right. We don't have a board of directors, and we're able to re- rewrite our operating agreement and the things that basically say, "Hey, you're going to choose um, environment and people." first and foremost, and as well as profitability, and you don't have to go to a board or a public to, traded or right. anyone to okay. approve all those okay. decisions. So it's kind of your guiding light, like your North Star. Well, I, well I, yeah. I, I do hope you guys get that, man. I, I really do. That'll be an amazing notch and something great, not only for you guys, but also for the environment and, and people as well. So thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate your guys' time. Yeah, you guys can, let me give a quick shout out. To Maria, I'll never forget the first time I came in and saw your work ethic. You work harder than a lot of brewers I know. Thank um, you. The amount of running around and understanding of what needs to be done. We have, over the past five years, learned that that's not normal. You work really hard, so kudos to you. Thanks. I have a team now, so it's really great. And I spend <laughs> a lot of time on a computer now, but... I know what they go through. So anytime they need me, I'm there for them. And, sure. and it's just part of how supportive you should be to your team. So Yeah, I love it. It's a paradoxical switch. Yeah. Right? Congratulations <laughs> to you, too, through pushing through all the, the hard work that requires to get to that position. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it, any brewer will tell you, like, you got to grind for a while to yeah. get to the level where you're pulling the strings and doing the admin stuff and creating recipes, you know, like, and, and that's one of the hard parts with the generation right now is like, you got to oh. put in the work. Yep. You got to do it. So Absolutely. kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it, man. We love you. Have a good one. Cheers. Love All you right. both. Thanks for inviting us. All right. All right, man. All right. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Full Pint, a popular craft beer news website which has been providing craft beer drinkers and industry insiders with news and views on all things craft beer for over a decade. He also hosts a weekly podcast which features in-depth conversations with industry insiders. Along with his team of editors, writers, and reviewers, he has bore witness and reported on all the milestones, trends, and personalities that have shaped our industry. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Dan Becker, a.k.a. Danny Fullpint. How you doing, man? Man, I'm doing great, Jonathan. How's it going with you? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I, I think I said before, how does it feel to be on the other end of the mic here? 
Yeah, it's a it's a little it's a little different for me. I'm used to uh, holding the host seat, so this is pretty cool. <laughs> well, we are very glad to have you on, man. Uh, this is uh, this is awesome because you have interviewed myself and Maria, uh, you know, in separate episodes. But now we get the opportunity to actually interview you. So, kind of flip the script here. Um, I want uh, you talked about your dad being an influence on your love of craft beer. What was he drinking when you were a teen growing up in New Jersey? So, uh, you know, he, you know, he, you know, since I was a little kid, it was always Pabst Blue Ribbon. And that's when I was pretty sure I would never drink beer when I would steal some sips from his PBRs. But as we got older, he was like, you know, there is better beer than PBR. I just can't afford it. And, you know, he'd, he'd take me down to the, you know, the, the warehouse or whatever, and he was showing me, you know, stuff like Dinkle Locker and Samuel Adams and, and even Lowenbrow was a step up from, <laughs> from PBR. And he's like, look, son, you get the 30 pack of Bush for you and your friends. And here's the good six pack for you later. And, and you're going to want to enjoy that. Put it in a glass. This is, you know, something special. So that's awesome. You know, he he at least showed me the difference between, you know, that bottom tier on up to the, what, you know, back then it was just imports and a little bit of microbrew. Of course. Of course. I mean, yeah, back, back then would have been right. Sam Adams. And I mean, far from what we are now, obviously, but right. Obviously he helped you establish that kind of line of what macro was and what these other guys were and what soon obviously would take over. Um, right. How old were you when you moved from Jersey to Cali? So I was uh, out of the house by age 18, which, you know, by today's standards, you know, you have kids on the couch still at 30. Of course. Uh, I, <laughs> of course. You know, I, I moved out 18. I, I told my, my old man, I said, I'm out. I'm out of here. I want to make it a go out in California. He's like, right. Well, you need to find a school. You're not just going to wander around California. So I found a, a technical college to attend and. I was up and running by about 18, 19 years old. Oh, wow, man. That's uh, not a penny awesome. to my name. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you blazed your own trail once you got out there. That's pretty awesome, though. Since moving to California, obviously, from Jersey to Cali and the craft beer scene that was in Cali, like, what, I mean, when did you realize once you were in Cali that it was kind of like this craft beer mecca going on out there? Well, it was weird. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, the 30 packs of Bush and all. And I, I remember even uh, my friends in, in my age group at the time, the early 20s, they were like, hey, uh, you need to try uh, this uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. It's super strong. It'll get you buzzed quicker. Now, and we're talking 5.6% right. here at the time. And, <laughs> and, and and I just remember my that was my first experience with hops. Uh, there was a, a little beer called Henry Weinhards, which is like, you know, kind of like a legacy microbrew at the time now owned probably by Miller. But, uh, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know, you know, there was red hook and I was like, Hey, this is, this is really good. Uh, welcome to California. And I remember, you know, my first visit back from college trying to get somebody to drink Sierra Nevada pale ale with me. And they're like, what is wrong with you? It's like, that is not <laughs> beer. And that's when I knew I was kind of on to something. Of course. I mean, uh, so when, what was the time period then? When, when you, I'm thinking early 2000s, anywhere between 2000, 2005. Ooh, so uh, I mean, you and, were really at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, really right at the beginning. And then I remember, you know, you could get bombers of Stone, IPA, and Arrogant Bastard. Also, I mean, you had the Sours from Lost Abbey. And then obviously, right. I mean, I never was a big fan of the Stouts out there, but those were kind of the guys that kind of got the scene rolling along with kind of Dark Lord back in the early 2000s I think, as well. Uh, Alesmith Speedway stat was the hottest thing you could get then too. Yeah. Uh, right. And, 12% stout, you know. And they weren't, I don't think back then they were doing the different variations. I think that came along later if I'm, if I'm correct. Right. It was like, uh, I, I remember everybody's head popped right off when they did a barrel age version of Speedway. Like that was, that was kind of, end all yeah. 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 That was like the first whale, you know? So uh, that man. was my introduction six years ago. The first like craft beer trip that we took, John took us to San Diego. And I remember like my mind being blown because it was just a brewery every block at one point. And I was like, what is happening here? He's like, yep, San Diego. This is the, the beer craft beer Mecca. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, I, I don't know if they people still consider it that, but like when I went from working at Cigar City with like no other breweries in, in Tampa to all of a sudden going to work at Stone 
and all of a sudden there was like, yeah, we got uh, 99, you know, 99 breweries in San Diego County. And I'm like, <laughs> what? It's just, it's unbelievable, like, what, what happened out there. I don't, I don't know what the scene's like now. I mean, I think there's even more. They might be up to like 200 breweries, but it's oh. a, a big, there's a big, disc, uh, not discrepancy, but there's a big separation between like the little hole in the wall, maybe five barrel system to like the stones and the Carl Strausses and the ballast points. So there's like, there's real small guys, real big guys and a couple medium sized players out there now, but you know, they don't, they don't lack beer over there. So what, what, I mean, would you say that Sierra Nevada was that? that craft beer that really lit the spark for you or was it something else? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, along the, what we've been discussing really stone and firestone Walker had uh, a bigger, uh, influence as far as craft beer. Whereas I, at that point, because I could get Sierra Nevada everywhere, it was kind of just in that good beer category for me. But as far as a craft brewed beer, I would say, you know, firestone Walker, they, you know, at, you know, back in the mid two thousands, they were California only. Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that, that was pretty special, uh, lost Abbey. Definitely. They were like, you know, they would, they would release something. You'd have to go drive there and get it. And it was like, right. It was like, you'd have to work for your good beer. <laughs> exactly. It just wasn't available everywhere. Let's talk about John Sims. When along this timeline, did you meet him? That's amazing. So John Sims, AKA Johnny full pint. So I, I move out here when I'm 18, uh, I find this technical college and I don't know anybody. I don't own a car. I meet. Oh, wow. Okay. I meet this black guy that I've, you know, I, there's not, you know, in, in New South Jersey, it was, uh, very segregated. It was like, you were either in a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood. Um, and I met my wife who's right comes right from the Philippines. So I now have two friends as soon as I move there. Uh, and so, uh, John, John and I were really still acting like high school kids in, in a technical <laughs> college with a bunch of grown people that are trying to further their career. And we're just cutting up being goofballs, you know, uh, taking safety meetings in between classes. And it was just, That's we yucked it up and we, you know, True story. We're now next door neighbors. We each have our own set of kids that go to school together. It, it couldn't be funnier. <laughs> That's but awesome. Him and I, like, we you know we've been at each other's weddings, all that stuff, all the way back since like 99, 2000. So That's great. He does more behind the scenes stuff for the full pint. He does to make sure it looks good. He does the editing of the show. He, you know, before COVID, he was up uh, heading up the event. When did you initialize this idea of the full pint and, and what was the idea behind the full pint? Well, because we were in IT, we, we knew shortly. I mean, when you begin your IT career, you're doing stuff like hooking up printers for people. You're doing all the stuff that nobody likes to do. And, and we immediately said, OK, this we got to find a way out of doing IT for a living. So uh, I was doing a contract gig, uh, doing it for a company and they didn't want me actually working. They just wanted to justify headcount. They're like, you just sit in this cubicle and do nothing all day. I said, do nothing all day. Uh, I, I, I said to Johnny, I said, Hey, let's, uh, let's find something to give a run for rate beer and beer advocate. They're a little too pretentious and stuffy. Let's do a fun spin on the community they do. And, and we spun up a website and I began cold calling breweries out of a cubicle during my <laughs> IT gig. That sounds amazing. That's amazing, dude. I it, called Dogfish Head, Oscar Blues, like, you know, just like, you know, the most popular 20 craft breweries at the time. And I said, why don't you send us some press releases or some event information? And they said, really? I said, and they're like, what's the catch? I go, nothing. We need content. And so we looked bigger than we had any right to be at, at all the way back in like 2007 through 2010. And we just began curating other breweries, uh, you know, voices. Right. And, and that's really, that was the, that was the trick at the time. I mean, you know, there's lots more media these days with social media and, you know, websites and all that. But at the time breweries really didn't have a way to get the word out. And we found that, that wow. opportunity. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're talking to Dan Becker of the Full Pint. You, as much as me, probably have a great perspective 
on the craft beer industry over the past decade. How would you compare what it is today than when you first started the full pint back in 2007? Well, uh, I think that, you know, back when we started the full pint, I mentioned, you know, the, one of our, our main objectives was to be not so stuffy and not be so serious about beer. And, and if you remember, it was craft beer was kind of treated like wine culture. It was kind of guarded. It was kind of, there was some gatekeeping going on. Like, you know, I will say this, you're absolutely right because both of those sites, I mean, I think rate beer more than beer advocate because I was actually a member on both of them since I was a beer drinker and a craft beer aficionado and a craft beer trader back then. I remember that, to, you know, the, the whole thing with those two sites was about ratings. How many ratings did you have? How many beers did you check off? You know, and, and, and to afford the ability to actually register a beer as being checked off or rated, I think you had to compose like a multiple paragraph break, breakdown on rate beer to actually even submit one. So it was like this, it was like guys, I remember having, you know, bottle shares and stuff with guys with voice. <laughs> I can't, it's, it's hard for me to even bring up because it's actually hilarious to me. Now that I think back on it, it's like I had dudes at my house with like little flip notepads writing down like all the tasting notes, you know, aroma, uh, uh, flavor, uh, you know, everything in the book. Or handheld recorder. Right. It was a handheld. I had one guy that would constantly come with a handheld recorder and speak into it all of his oh notes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, no, it's, like, it's no, that's really how it was. And, I mean, there was, you know, there's also like, like a lot of actuallys going on. Like, actually, that's not how they, they do oh it gosh. in Belgium or, you know, right. a lot of that going on. So now fast <laughs> forward, you're in 2021, right? You got cans that look like comic books. You right. got everything with massive amounts of fruit. Now I'm, I'm just not taking a jab at, at Wakefield beer, but I was in Trader Joe's oh and boy. there's a, there's a fruited version of every style of beer now. And if you went back in the time machine, 10, 20 years ago, that was all kind of frowned upon like, Oh, fruited beer isn't really beer or fruited beer is this and that. Now it's like, it's on, everybody's got a fruit beer. Everybody's selling it where very well. Uh, there is no stigma surrounding it. It's like it's the norm. If if we had right, if you would take a time machine back to 2009, when I first rolled out, you know, at Cigar City, like with these uh, pilot batches of DFPF, and when they did Fruit in the Room, I rolled out uh, Grandma's uh, Strawberry Rhubarb Pie, and then Miami Madness. People were like, I mean, Cigar City actually brought to the forefront of actually having a festival just for fruit beers but everything else like if you put fruit in beer it was like a big no-no like you, right it was like no no you don't do that like you don't do that you're you're butchering you're you know you are completely ruining a beer by adding fruit to it <laughs> i mean far cry from what we got now a lot of it, machi- a lot of machismo culture that i think has uh gone away and i think it's for the better i think you know to a degree people should like what they like i mean uh, I think the whole seltzer and the the smoothie seltzer and all that stuff is just a, a reaction to the the decades of machismo and beer. And it's like, you know what? At the end of the day, people worked a hard eight, ten hour day. Let them drink whatever they want. You no, know I, what I mean? And I think I think we're exactly there. I mean, people like, you know, you've been in this long enough, just about as long as I have in the craft beer industry. What we were drinking back then, 2004, 2005 versus what? 2021 is it's a far cry you know and it's completely different there's nothing wrong with what people are drinking now because this is what they want they want smoothies they want heavy lactose in their uh fruited beers they want massively adjuncted stouts they want dessert in their they want desserts yeah and one not just stouts i mean i think it's you know the fruit uh, smoothie uh sours it's everything people want sweets I mean, it's just like and this people have more options now, Jonathan. It's like if people want a crispy lager, old right. world lager, it's still able. You can still go buy it. If you still want a hoppy IPA, you can still get it. Yep. So nothing's being taken away from anybody. If anything, there's just more options for more people, and and beer is just more things to more people now, and that's fine. No, absolutely, and I think I think it's a good thing, but I think it also makes breweries work harder to try to cover all of those bases. I mean, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you're not at least checking multiple boxes off in those style categories, then I think you're going to miss the mark on a lot of things. 
I'm consulting with a company here in Pasadena that wants to launch a brewery. And, you know, this guy's really into pale ales and IPAs and lagers. And I say, so am I, but he's like, I absolutely don't want to do a fruit beer or a sour beer. I said, then you're, you're leaving money on the table. I was like, you, you need to include those people as well. Otherwise you're, you're just, you're, you're not making all the money you can. No, I agree. I mean, like, yeah. don't be righteous about <laughs> other people's beer styles. You no, know, listen, when I started, you know, in 2015 with this brewery, it was for me before like all these, you know, obviously we, we weren't part of the hazy IPA. We obviously got into that because that's what people want, but we were doing adjunct stouts and fruited sours at the beginning of this. And it was like, for me, because I know a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, he's making all this crap. For me, it was like, I wanted to think outside the box. Why be so boring and just brew classic styles? Not saying that we don't, because we make plenty of classic style beers that people still come and drink in droves. But it's like, to me, brewing the same four beers every single day of your life at a brewery would be so monotonous and tiring that it was just like, I like to be outside the box and be out of the norm. And I think a lot of other people have jumped in on that and this is that's why we are where we are now in the craft beer industry and now we add lactose to our sours (laughs) (laughs) nothing wrong with that you know but i'm just saying i mean i I, it just opens the door to more people more people can enjoy beer right yeah i mean you right i mean i think we've come a long ways from it being being guys in a room or in a house with a flip note pad and a voice recorder you know what i mean but i I mean what is your thoughts on then on the untapped i mean the one click button rating i mean i think obviously i think people want instant results now in today's society i think that just kind of flows right into everything else that's going on so you know i think that you know that's the big thing to do with anything is to gamify i just think you know untapped is is great data it's better i just think for the breweries and the and the restaurants and the pubs um i always wondered if like somebody's leaving a trail of their uh their drinking habit so to speak to put it nicely like oh wow you just drank 15 beers at the pub just now (laughs) now you have a, a trail of that but you know it's I think everybody likes to tick. People like to collect. Of course. Uh, so I think it's it's part of the journey. So as you mentioned, you used to be on rate beer. So was I. I used to tick beers. Um, and I think there's a lifespan of that. I think people eventually say, all right, I'm done doing this now. I just want to enjoy my beer. Right. It, but it, it, it's part of the hobby. No, I agree. I agree. What would you say are the trends that you and your editorial team will be watching and reporting on, you think, coming up in the future here? Uh, well, I do think like the summer of lager that everyone keeps hoping for, that's not going to come, unfortunately. But, you know, lager is going to keep being brewed. Um, I think more people are going to try the the smoothie seltzer, which I don't I don't know. I mean, you can argue that's not beer anyway. That's just another alcoholic beverage. Um, and I think I don't know. I think that uh, straight up barrel aged beer is going to start being in vogue again, whereas like. We, I think we've pushed the boundaries of, of the adjunct stout to the point where people now want to go back and see what a spirit barrel does by itself. No, and, and I, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one because I think we're heading back that way because I absolutely agree. I don't know what other adjuncts you could possibly put on the list to throw in a beer anymore. Another trend I'm seeing, and I'm not sure it's is going to make a make a wave in craft beers i'm starting to see some world classics over from europe being canned now like a lot of german lagers and even i saw saison dupont hitting a 16 ounce can which i feel like this opens up these beers to a new audience and it it might maybe spark a brewer to say hey i could can i could do a four pack of saison or i could do a a four pack of hefeweizen and and see where that goes, but I, I'm not, I still think we're very heavily into the the sweeter flavors here in the state. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we always. I mean, I think the American society has always been a little bit on the sweeter side. Um, but I mean, that's kind of news to me about Dupont and these other classics. I mean, to me, that'd be great. I mean, you're starting to see more and more styles represented in cans i mean the the ways of of the bottle i think are almost gone to be absolutely you know 100 percent honest with you i mean i've watched the trend i think it makes it more approachable you're like this isn't a special occasion beer this is a beer i can drink after work or this is a 
beer I can drink watching the game versus, nope. oh man, it's got a cork and it's big right. and yeah. I got to get out my, take a picture of this. And Oh, trust me. I, I have, we have battled with it ourselves with the idea of putting DFPF, Miami Madness, Cuvée into cans or keeping it in bottles. You know, I mean, it, it's a tough one, but as we keep seeing, everything keeps just moving to cans because it is a more approachable format. I've just found that consumers don't want to pay what it would, the volume in a four-pack of DFPF, what it should cost versus what they pay in a 750, you know what I mean? Sure, and that's the thing that brewers, you know, have to consider too is, uh, I mean, some of us view this as a beverage and a business, and some of us view this as a product. And what you're holding in, in, in your hand has uh, some perceived value to it. So, you know, when, when you do see that beautiful bottle and label and, you know, special packaging, whether it be the cork and cage, uh, there's some added value to that, that you just sometimes the, when you're doing your bookkeeping does, you know, doesn't show up on the ledger. It's like, do people feel like they're holding uh, a luxury item or not? And that that's always something to consider. Of course. I mean, it's the same thing like when we do Bakke. So I would absolutely agree with that. I got a real question. Now that you've brought up all these trends and everything, what are you drinking these days? Well, uh, I'm still, you know, I'm very much a, a fresh West Coast IPA guy. I was going to, I was, I thought you might have said PBR, but. <laughs> well, you know, that. That's sometimes uh, if my, my, my slum in it beer. And I, I hope that constellation brands isn't listening right now. Uh, I, I'll always take a, a can of Modelo, uh, a special, uh, or a tall can of that or, um, Negra Modelo. Oh yeah. Uh, either way, but it's gotta be in a can, not a bottle, uh, not in, you know, shrimp cocktail just by itself. <laughs> uh, they do some real wacky things out here. I don't know how they do it in Miami, but, I see people dumping Modelo in the Micheladas with shrimp and oh. cucumbers and. Oh, well, I mean, uh, like you said, you everybody's know, got their own their own. Uh, everybody's got their thing. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, yeah. So my my uh, not think about it would be uh, Modelo, but then I get access to Pizza Port Swami's IPA, Ooh. which is just a classic San Diego seven percent IPA. Okay. Um, they don't pay me to say that, but uh, it's in the it's in the rotation. That's awesome, man. I really want to say thank you very much for coming on the show, man. It's awesome to actually have the flip role here and actually get to interview you and find out a little more information about yourself. Um, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you, man. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate your time. I really buddy. appreciate it, you guys. Uh, have a, a great evening or a great, great afternoon, and uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take care. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Jonathan Buford, Patrick Ware, and Dan Becker, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. We're here each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday at 1 p.m. You can also find repeat episodes on the SiriusXM app. Remember, people, the thirst is real.